Well, we have the results of the Cleveland mayoral primary, and there's a lot to talk about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Seth Richardson, our chief political writer who put in a long night, Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. I hope you're all ready for a robust discussion. But before we get to the mayor's race, I want to talk about a jaw dropper that came out of the Mike DeWine briefing yesterday. Let's begin. Do we now know the real reason Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has not ordered a statewide mask mandate in schools to protect the state's children from the coronavirus? Laura Johnson, we've been wondering over and over again why he has not taken action. That the children's wards are filling up with kids. Kids are sick as hell. It's, it's really quite a crisis in Ohio, and he's done nothing. Who is he blaming for his inaction? He's blaming the Republican legislature. And yeah, we have been saying, why doesn't he do something? Is he afraid of running for reelection? Is he you know, just afraid that he's going to get booed by all the Republicans? But no, he is laying the blame squarely on the legislature. He said he could create a mandate and the legislature would immediately override it. And his view is even if he had a mandate on for a few days, that the amount of time it took the legislature to get back together and vote it down, that would be too confusing for people. And this came up in the very first question from reporters after Children's Hospital executives spoke for nearly an hour on a news conference, basically begging people to get vaccinated and wear masks. And he basically, I mean, he was blunter about it than I have ever heard. I, you know, I was listening to the news conference, just like, you know, the old days with wine with DeWine going, oh my gosh, that's the headline, write it up right now. Because uh, yeah, it was, it was blunt. So basically, what he's saying, without saying it as clearly as I'm about to, is that Bob Cup and Matt Huffman are responsible for a whole lot of sick children filling up hospital wards. They and their bodies they control because they have rebelled against science and done nonsense like, you know, fighting masks that protect people. They've put kids in the hospital. I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think it no, is, it's, not, it's it's what he said. He's right. saying I He's would saying, do it. I would do it. I believe that it's necessary. I, we, I think we need a mask mandate in schools. And he, to be clear, he was specifically speaking about schools. We ended up calling Dan Tierney and asking because he wasn't using the word school when he's talking about a mask mandate. But that's what the question was. He's saying we should have it. I would put one on, but I can't because the Republican legislature will overrule me. And the problem it, it's, I don't want to just blame two people, obviously, because they're speaking for what they think is their constituency. And you look at people all over Ohio who are unmasked. But it's leadership. You're right. They are the leaders. Matt Huffman, Bob Cup are the leaders of the House and the Senate. They know what the science shows and they're not doing anything. I think it's very fair to say, based on what DeWine said, that the suffering of children has been caused by Bob Cup, Matt Huffman, and the people they lead. And that is a terrible position to be in. My, you know, DeWine said, I hope they watch. I hope they listen. I hope they do the right thing. They've never shown any inclination to do the right thing here. They've taken away the governor's power to keep people safe. I mean, he basically said, I'm emasculated here. There's nothing I can do. So I'm working other ways, trying to persuade schools to do it right. when the legislature could do it. So. Yeah, absolutely. They ended up having a conference call with a bunch of superintendents. So they're they're trying to go straight to the superintendents and say, put a mask mandate on in your schools. And we talked about it on this podcast that the changing mandates 
since the school year began as so many kids got sick. But can I talk a little bit about how bad it is out there? Because these numbers are kind of incredible. One night this week in Lucas County, every hospital emergency department was full. Like no one had any openings. So EMS had to take people not to the best or closest ER, but to the next one in a queue, basically saying, you go here. So they could take a three-year-old to the regular hospital because that was the next opening that they had. And in Dayton, 30 parents took their kids home from the hospital, like, I think it was in a night or a week, because they couldn't get in to be seen. And normally that number is zero. So these are kids who might have had COVID or might have had something else like a concussion, and they just wanted to get their kids checked out. And they were worried enough to go to the hospital, but they couldn't stay because the wait was so long because they're so overrun with COVID patients. Mm -hmm. So Matt Huffman, Bob Cup, are you listening? This is your legacy, the suffering of children. Well done. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who emerged from the Cleveland primary election for mayor to face off in the November general election? Seth Richardson, there's a lot to unpack with this. First, let's go through. Who are they? Yeah, definitely a lot, right? And I, I think it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people, but Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly are the uh, the two candidates who are going to be in the general election to you know, potentially succeed uh, four-term retiring Mayor Frank Jackson. And, you know, really the, the, the kind of uh, top line of the story, right, was it was a, a genuinely really impressive victory uh, by Bibb throughout the night. He, you know, he... When early votes and absentees came in, he had a pretty sound lead. I think it was somewhere around uh, 900 or 1,000 votes. And um, really, as returns came in the rest of the night, he continued to just grow his lead You know, with every you know, success, you know, successive uh, uh, ballot dump. It was honestly a really, uh, really impressive victory by him, I would say. Well, he got what? He got 27% plus of the vote. Kevin Kelly got what, 2019? I mean, there, there's a big gulf between them. And Kelly had about 1,000 plus votes more than Dennis Kucinich. So, so he was a firm second. But clearly now this is Bibbs to lose. I mean, he, he's in a very good position to, to pick up the votes needed to win in November. Yeah, one thing that I, you know, I went and looked at last night was, uh, you know, how each individual ward voted, right? And one thing that I thought was uh, uh, pretty remarkable was that, you know, Justin Bibb uh, finished, he won four wards, right? He dominated in Ward 3, which is downtown Ohio City, that area, uh, and Ward 15, which is Detroit Shoreway. So that near west side, he did really well. He actually also won Ward 8, which is that far northeast, you know, uh, Collinwood, Glenville area, and uh, Ward Six, which was you know another very interesting ward for him to win. That's the Larchmere, Woodland Hills sort of you know east side area that was really competitive. When I was doing the weekend story, uh, you know both Kelly and uh, City Councilman Bashir Jones were kind of doing some of their last pitches there. Um, but he didn't. He he finished third or better in every single ward across the city, which is you know a possible indicator that he's got. Well, obviously he had more widespread support than I think a lot of us thought because, you know, of, of such a strong showing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty fair assessment that we could kind of consider him in the driver's seat at the moment. Um, I, I, I don't think but, it's... But, well, I, but, but one of the reasons I say that is, as, as you heard from some of the victories or the, the concession speeches, both Dennis Kucinich and I think you said Zach Reed saluted Bib for a well-run campaign, which makes you wonder... Will the losing mayoral candidates endorse Bibb and not Kelly? 
Yeah, I I don't know if uh, Kucinich will necessarily come out. He might just kind of, you know, fade to black, go back to doing what he was doing. Um, But that said, he might still want to be, you know, vested in some way. Reed, I could definitely see coming out, whether it's for one or the other. But I think given the past, we know which uh, which candidate he would probably be more inclined to support. It's not like him and uh, Kevin Kelly have been the best of friends over the past decade plus. Um, But but yeah, I mean, it's the, the other thing, you know, going going back to the numbers, if I can for a minute is looking at Kelly's finish, right? He did really well on the West side. You know, I think he, you know, finished first or second, basically uh, every ward on the West side. But you look at the east side, and it's a lot of sixth place finishes, a lot of fifth place finishes. That includes, you know, he he got Frank Jackson's endorsement, and the thought there was that it would really help boost him in, you know, the southeast Ward One, which is the you know Lee Harvard, uh, Union Miles, uh, some of Mount Pleasant, that kind of area. And you know, also I found pretty remarkable uh, Ward Five, which is you know the Midtown area, which is Frank Jackson's home ward. Kelly actually came in last there, so. You, you do kind of wonder how much Jackson's endorsement, you know, helped hurt anything like that. Yeah, I think people really do still like Jackson, but they didn't follow what he was suggesting as an endorsement. I, it doesn't appear that, that it. That's probably helped. a good assessment. I would agree with that. It didn't help Kelly much at all. Let's talk for a minute about the dark money campaign that was in support of Kelly. There was some very ugly stuff that went out at the um, at, in the final weeks of the campaign that we wondered uh, in a previous episode whether it would backfire, whether people would see that and think it was so unseemly that they'd rebel against it. It was a, some attacks on Justin Bibb. Going forward, um, that that fund was originally put together to discredit Dennis Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich in the beginning of the campaign was looked as the front runner and the people who raised money for this, the anonymous people laying in the shadows that raised money for this, sold it as we got to make sure people understand who Kucinich is. Then that fund went after Bib without really telling the donors. What do you think happens next? Do you think donors are going to want to be part of a campaign that uses sleazy tactics to attack Justin Bibb? Or do you think the money might dry up a little? And we should remind people, come January, we're going to have all the names of the people that contributed to this sleazy campaign. I think you there's a pretty good chance you're going to see some of that money dry up. Um, just if only for the reason because, you know, obviously they, they wanted – Kevin Kelly to win, right? They weren't right. exactly pro Kelly. They weren't putting out pro Kelly mailers or anything, but they they were attacking Dennis Kucinich for a reason because Dennis Kucinich, you know, Kevin Kelly viewed Dennis Kucinich as kind of the his primary rival, right? They were kind of battling for you know the same votes. But then, but then our editorial board endorsed Justin Bibb. Former Mayor Michael R. White endorsed Justin Bibb, and all of a sudden that campaign was focused on Justin Bibb. And I think if you are in the business community here, this is, you know, I, I haven't talked with anyone since the election, but, you know, I, I think people in the business community who were kind of backing this dark money group, you know, can probably like are probably going to look at this election and say, well, you know, we, we, we'd be happy with Kevin Kelly or we would be happy with Justin Bibb. And given some of the tenor that has come out of it, do we really want to risk angering the next mayor, regardless of who it is? So, well, I think, let me, I think you see that. Me, I, well, go ahead. well, let me ask you this then. It, it, for the donors that already provided money under the guise that this was about keeping Dennis Kucinich out of the mayor's office, which all sorts of people wanted to, to take care of, 
Do, do they have the ability because the money was used in a in an unseemly way against Justin Bibb to ask for their money back that it was a bait and switch? Well, you can ask, but you're, it's, uh, I, I don't know too many dark money groups that are going to, you know, go around giving too many refunds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they can ask for it back or they can try to distance themselves. No one has done that. I think that's probably, you know, notable, right, that that hasn't happened yet. Um, so but the. the you know, we know that they spent a lot of money in the primary, and we know that this general election is probably going to be pretty expensive, right? Kevin Kelly and Justin Bibb raised, I, if I'm not mistaken, were the number one, number two fundraisers in the primary election. Kevin Kelly was definitely the top fundraiser. So we know both candidates are going to be really well funded. We also know that there's probably going to be, you know, we like we, we can't ignore that there's going to be some dark money that goes for BIP, right? Conservation Ohio is out there. I wouldn't be surprised if SEIU comes in and maybe does some backing of them. They were backing Sandra Williams in the primary, but uh, they've been, you know, the, the uh, SEIU and Kevin Kelly have kind of been at odds for a while now. So. That yeah, might- except except Seth, it's not just that it's dark money. It's it's what they do with it. And then the people that were in support of Kelly were about as sleazy as it gets. I mean, I, I don't know that the environmental fund was doing that kind of low ball hitting. And well, and that's well, the question. Well, what I'm talking about is is just the funding itself, right? After seeing what happened in the primary with some of those mailers, right? That obviously angered some people, and I, I you know, it's it's hard to tell one way or another whether they activated, you know, voters or not. But I think I think we got a pretty clear indication that at least some people were upset with it, just based on, like I said, some of the ward turnout and whatnot. Um, that that's where I think you can see some of the funding dry up okay. and you know maybe maybe a new organization comes about right they dissolve uh, citizens for change and they open up you know something yeah. else that yeah. that you know there's the potential for that right and maybe maybe they focus on a more uh, a pro kelly slant this time as opposed to an you know an anti bib sort of slant um but okay. i mean there, there's going to be attacks one way or another i would guess well well i i don't i don't if there are attacks it'll be from dark money groups because the candidates have have largely avoided that so far at least let, we got to wrap this up pretty quick so let me let me ask you one question quick um we know bib can get votes on the west side because he did um and and that you need to win votes on both sides of town to be able to win the mayor's race from what you see does kelly have much chance of getting many east side votes uh if you look at the numbers for him on tuesday they're I think they're probably pretty troubling for Kevin Kelly right now, right? That said, I mean, you know, there's a lot of time between the November election and now. You know, saying this is going to be a cakewalk for Bib or anything like that. No, is, that's no. yeah, that's that's not you know, and, and it's not a lot of time. There's like six weeks, so sure. We'll sure. Um, and, All you right. Know, that said, I mean, it, it, we just don't know where those other votes are going to go, like where the Kucinich votes go or the Reed votes or the Jones or Williams votes. And there are a right. lot of votes there. Right. We have to remember that, you know, I got to stop this, Seth. We're running out of time. Got to okay. wind it down. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Who are the two Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission who are broken away from their colleagues to try and produce a map that is acceptable to Democrats 
unlike the gerrymandered map created by Senate President Matt Huffman and House Speaker Bob Cup. Lisa Garvin, this was encouraging news that some people on the Republican Party realized that supermajorities might not be a good thing. And the two who have kind of broken with the pack are Secretary of State Frank LaRose, no surprise to me, and Auditor Keith Faber, who both would like to have a tenure map. I mean, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer quoted LaRose last week on the original GOP map, and he said that it was a starting point and needs substantial work. So I think he was telegraphing his concerns early on there. So I'm not surprised by him uh, weighing in. Um, They've been meeting, both Faber and LaRose have been meeting with Democratic staff members and meeting privately apart from Huffman and Cup. So there are some interesting conversations going on there, I'm sure. But LaRose said that he would absolutely vote on a 10-year map, and he was talking about the Democratic map that was introduced uh, earlier this week that shows uh, Democrats getting 13 of 33 Senate districts and 42 of 99 House districts. LaRose called it a good faith effort by the Dems. So um, this gives me hopes that there's a little break in the Republican ranks there. Right. And look, when voters went to the polls and voted more than 70 percent to change the Constitution to get good faith efforts at maps, this is what they wanted. They wanted bipartisan stuff. Up until this development, Cup and Huffman were, were just being ridiculous. There was gerrymandered maps. They claimed they never thought about the politics, which violates the Constitution. They never looked at race, which violates federal law. I mean, they, they violated the Constitution in just about every way they could, which, which flies in the face of what voters wanted. This is the first time we've heard that there are some people in the Republican Party that want to do what voters asked. And so I'm heartened by this. They got to do it today. Today is the deadline. Right. But to have Republicans and Democrats working together in good faith to come up with fair maps and leave you know Huffman and Cup out of it because they've proven they're completely sleazy in this process, this is great news. It is. And uh, there is some talk, I guess Common Cause officials have raised the uh, possibility of pushing back today's deadline. Although the League of Women Voters says, no, no, we don't want to move the deadline. So interesting conflict there. But both Faber and LaRose... You can't move the deadline. Well, It's in the Constitution. Say, I know our thoughts on moving back the deadline. It's in the Constitution. Don't you can't it. just arbitrarily say, yeah, it's in the Constitution. We're, we're not going to pay attention to that. I'm sorry, Lisa. Go but ahead. no, I was just going to say that Faber and LaRose both said that they wouldn't rule out pushing out back the deadline for a 10-year map. So like you said, it's in the Constitution, but people did raise the possibility uh attorney general david yost is like he's immovable and he's expecting lawsuits and what he called a knife fight in the courts so we'll have we'll have something to look forward to after today whether it's a new map or court fights or whatever it will be the story of the day go ahead laura johnson laura johnson i was just gonna say i love that he was like it'd be like katie bar the door like (laughs) like this would be unprecedented obviously because this is the first time they've ever done it if they didn't meet the deadline and obviously we know how what we would do if they missed the deadline because it's in the constitution and they swore to uphold that constitution but yeah this is really interesting where is keith faber from obviously frank frank larose is from hudson so maybe the northeast ohioans have more sense. No, 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 he's not from Northeast. No. I think he's down from down south. But he okay. actually showed up to the, the meeting. So you got to give Keith Faber points for that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this is look. This is a big development. I hope it proves out because where we were before yesterday was just an abandonment of the principles of government. You're listening to this week in the CLE. If the new legislative maps of Ohio remain as gerrymandered as the current proposal and lawsuits result as would be likely, who on the Ohio Supreme Court would be the likely deciding vote? And what does history tell us about that? Lord Johnston, we just had a conversation saying that maybe the maps won't come out as gerrymandered as they are, but there's a possibility they will, and there's a good possibility of lawsuits. There's some interesting things that could happen if this gets to the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. But I have faith in Maureen O'Connor. She does not like gerrymandering. And she's a Republican who has a record of not only opposing partisan gerrymandering, but dissenting from her own Republican Party. Her view is that she needs to uphold the the Constitution and uphold what is right, not just side with the party. So uh, that, to me, sounds like a good person to be a swing vote on the Supreme Court. She obviously is not going to comment on this, but she said this quote in January about a 2012 decision that she dissented and um, other Republican justices upheld the current legislative lines. She said, I broke away from the mold in some people's minds. And so again, party affiliation should not, and people have to understand it should not have anything to do with how a judge does their job. Yeah, I, I think if the maps were stayed as they were now, based on history, she would not accept them. Um, but like we said, hopefully they'll change and be fair and it won't have to go yeah. to that decision. Andrew Tobias has a really interesting story on Cleveland.com he put up yesterday that really goes deep into the history and what she said in the past. So um, she's she can't run again because of her age. She'll be done with the Supreme Court. But you look back and she's had a really independent career. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What were the surprises in the primary elections for Cleveland City Council, if any, where incumbents are facing some fierce challenges? Seth Richardson, they all did pretty well, it looks like. Yeah, the incumbents all, you know, basically made it through, um, you know, which I think kind of, uh, you know, could have been expected, but there were some some tough races there. I think one of the the more surprising uh, races was uh, Ward 12, which is the you know Slavic Village area with Anthony Brancatelli. Um, you know, he's facing a challenge from, uh, you know, lawyer and activist Rebecca Marr. And, you know, while Brancatelli made it through, you know, he got 46 percent of the vote. Uh, Rebecca Moore was hot on his tail. She was only down by 78 votes at the end of the night. Um, so that's probably going to be one of the uh, probably the race to watch as far as, uh, you know, incumbent versus challenger or anything like that. Yeah, she she's an interesting uh, challenger for him. I And she was part of a group that is kind of running as progressive believes in participatory budgeting and things I, I that she could pull that off. She could win. I was a little bit surprised to see Richard Starr did not come out first in his race. There were, everybody was believing that he's beloved in the world, all his work in the boys and girls club, everybody knows him, but he didn't even place first. Yeah. Another, another close race there with Dolores Gray. Um, again, I, I think that's going to be a pretty contentious one over there. Um, you know, I, I Part of the part of me just because we have this mayoral race going on, I, I I wonder what the kind of trickle down effect is and all that, and where those votes kind of go and how that matters. Um, but I think yeah, you're going to see at least you know several very competitive races. Um, 
And, you know, as far as the non-incumbents go, I think another surprising one is uh, Ward 7. Bashir Jones's seat, you know, he he gave it up to run for council. That includes, you know, Huff, St. Clair Superior, that kind of area uh, where you've got, uh, you know, State Representative Stephanie House making it through the primary, which I think a lot of people expected. But uh, T.J. Dow, uh, former councilman, is trying to make a comeback and, you know, did pretty well all things considered though it was a it was a crowded field um, yeah you know. that was a surprise because he was a terrible councilman i mean <laughs> there, there was a reason he lost last time around uh i was i mean he because he that was neck and neck he did not lose by much either uh it'll be interesting to see whether the other candidates in that whether their voters go to stephanie house there was some there was some good news in the ken johnson race <laughs> i mean there were he was on the ballot even though he can't take the seat and he's won every time for 40 years. And there was a fear that because there were so many candidates that his name re recognition would get him in. But the voters were aware that he is a criminal, that he has defrauded them and been stealing them blind. And he didn't end up even third. Right. He ended up fourth or fifth. Yeah, it, it, it was it was pretty clear early on that, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to have uh, this war to really make it through. He was he was way behind and early in absentee voting. And uh, you would think that that would probably be where his best showing is um, just because, you know, as time goes on, there's more time to campaign against the guy who was uh, uh, convicted on federal charges. Uh, yeah, he ended up with, he ended up fifth with, you know, around seven percent of the vote. Um, you know, again, a pretty low turnout, uh, uh, you know, ward there. But uh, you, well, I, I do want to say that one thing um, that I didn't realize until this morning that is fascinating about the uh, city council races is that there is the possibility that there could be identical twins on city council next year, which I did not know um, with Deborah Gray and Ward 4 and Dolores Gray and Ward 5. So um, I don't know. That's, I did not know that either. I, I, I didn't know that until this I, morning. It's it, it's pretty interesting. I do want to talk about one other just because it, it's eternal. Mike Palencic, who was first elected in 1977, I mean, he was a councilman when Dennis Kucinich was mayor 40 plus years ago, won hugely. The guy is is just eternal. He's been there forever. Um, and you would think because of all of the changes over time, the challengers would start to make some kind of progress against him. But he obliterated the challengers in that race. Yeah, really, really. I think he got seventy, yeah, seventy percent, seventy-seven percent of the vote, rather. Um, you know, up in that Collinwood-based district. Um, you know, there's there's something to be said for longevity, right? You know, people kind of tend to like their own representative, even if they think that government isn't going well. We see it all the time in national politics. You know, with like the House of Representatives and whatnot. And you know, if if guys, you know, if your councilman is out in the community and doing things invisible which Polensic has been for, you know, decades now, right, then, uh, you know, it really does breed trust there. So that that's probably a big reason that, you know, he continues to just kind of dominate there. But he but he's like that, you know, those breeds of shark that, that scientists say, yeah, they were swimming in the ocean when the dinosaurs were on the earth. He was a councilman when Dennis Kucinich was the mayor. I mean, it's just, wow, holy moly, a lot of institutional knowledge there. Uh, we'll have to see if uh, once this is down to one-on-one -on -one races, whether the incumbents remain as strong, but it does look like we'll have some close races to pay attention to on election night in November. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Supreme Court Justice Jennifer Bruner is a Democrat, but which Republicans' ideas does she say she will carry forth if she wins the battle to replace Maureen O'Connor as Chief Justice next year? 
Lisa Garvin, this was a refreshing kind of approach from a Democratic candidate embracing Republican ideas. Well, but actually these ideas, which were Judge O'Connor's, among others, were are good ideas. I mean, there were things we've been talking about on Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for months now, being bail reform, which was brought forth by Maureen O'Connor, who, as we said earlier in this podcast, cannot run again because of her age for chief justice. Also conviction reform, uh, a statewide sentencing database, which we've also discussed quite a bit here in our in our print and online issues, and more special dockets like for drugs, mental health dockets, and so forth. But quite honestly, I've been impressed with Maureen O'Connor. Even as a Republican, she seems pretty centrist. And really, if we're if we're talking about judicial races anyway, there shouldn't be any sort of, you know, you know, party affiliation. I mean, it should all just be nonpartisan. So, you know, it's, it's, but it's refreshing to, to see that she's going to carry those things forward if she becomes uh, Supreme, uh, the chief justice next year. Well, she, but she is running against a Republican Sharon Kennedy, who is very partisan. If yes. you look at Sharon Kennedy's opinions, when you say they shouldn't base things on party, I think you can make a strong argument that Kennedy does. So it's interesting to have somebody in that race against her who does appear to be saying, look, let's do the right thing, regardless of party, following in the footsteps of Maureen O'Connor. Maureen O'Connor has been trying to make things bipartisan in judicial races for a long time because she says no judge that's worth a damn bases decisions on party dogma. They base it on the law and the case and the facts. Um, but it does seem, you know, we talked earlier about if the gerrymandering goes to the Supreme Court, there's three Democrats and four Republicans, but O'Connor is a Republican and she doesn't go by party. So she could be the swing vote. It seems like Jennifer Bruner is making a case she would operate in the same style. Right, in a nonpartisan way. And and I don't know much about Sharon Kennedy. I know she's a judge in Butler County. Uh, she did get the endorsement of the state uh, GOP party. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing at this point. I would say probably a bad thing, but we'll see as this rolls out. That will be a very high dollar race, I think. We'll see a lot of money pouring into that one. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good discussion. It's a it's an exciting time to be paying attention to Cleveland politics and the state politics. Just so much going on. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>